Hi everyone, I'm Laurel Conrad. I'm the program director at the Claire Booth Lewis Policy Institute. Thank you all for joining us today. And thank you to Bridget Wagner. Uh, Heritage and CBLPI have had a great partnership over the years hosting these conservative women's networks. Now I'm delighted to introduce today's CWN speaker, Anne McElhaney. Anne is a journalist, writer, film producer, and director. She and her husband, journalist Phelan McAleer, are the authors of Gosnell, the untold story of America's most prolific serial killer, published by Regnery. The book tells the story of Kermit Gosnell, a respected doctor who ran a medical clinic in an impoverished Philadelphia neighborhood. But behind the doors of his clinic, Gosnell was America's most prolific serial killer. She also produced the film titled Gosnell, which she financed by running a massive crowdfunding campaign, the most successful indie go-go campaign ever. Over 26,000 people funded the film, contributing $2.75 million in just 45 days. To date, the project raised over $2.34 million from over 29,000 people. Anne is also the director and producer of Frack Nation, a journalist's search for the fracking truth, a documentary on the natural gas boom in the U.S. and abroad, as well as Not Evil, Just Wrong, a film which examines the devastating consequences of global warming hysteria. She has written for, or is a regular contributor to, an array of international media organizations, including CNN, Fox News, ABC, and BBC, to name a few. She's a regular on a number of U.S. talk radio shows, including The Hugh Hewitt Show, The Dennis Miller Show, and The Dennis Prager Show. Additionally, Anne has spoken for CBLPI at a number of our events, and she's also on our campus speaking list. So if you'd be introduced, would be interested in bringing her to your campus, um, please talk to me afterwards. So now, please join me in welcoming Anne McElhiney. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's quite the day it's turning out to be. Um, I, I, this week has just gone from, uh, from extraordinary to more extraordinary. Um, we were number three on Amazon bestsellers for the you know, whole of the United States um, for a whole day. And uh, we're, um, I'm going to be on the Rush Limbaugh show this afternoon. And, uh, and uh, the Vice President of the United States has invited Phelan and I to go over to the White House today. Um, so... It's um, it's uh, it's it's a lot of winning. It's great, but I'm not bored. You know the way they say bored of winning yet? No, not quite. Um, I, I I really hope you buy the book. I hope people buy the book. I, I hope people read the book. Um, I, I amaze my myself a little bit when I reread bits of it, and it still it's it still upsets me. Um, I think that's kind of an extraordinary thing. I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not jaded with this story. Um, and you know, I think, I think, it, I think what's really important about it is I think there's loads and loads of things that are important about it. I think it has all these kind of layers of interest for people. So you know, from from a human interest point of view, it's off the charts. Um, the idea of what happened to these children, and I suppose to really focus on them as individual people, because often I think the numbers are so overwhelming when people talk about abortion and they talk about 50 million and all of this. And then, and then there's these individual stories that we have tried to highlight and tried to tell in detail. And, um, you know, it's kind of an extraordinary thing. It's, uh, um, they, bec they become huge. And Baby Boy is a huge thing now. He's a huge person. Um, though he lived a very short life, um, you can make a difference in a very short space of time and I think I think there's something um, there's some justice in that he will be remembered and known um, you know that that struggle for life had such an impact on the people who saw him that three of them took a photograph and that photograph changed everything um, you know that's one part of it then there's another part of it which is um, you know politics um, I'm you know Bridget and I are, are old friends and she knows my story, which is, you know, um, I used to be a liberal, you know, and as I like to say to people, but I'm okay now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and a, and, a, and a story changed me um, on politics and, and some, of you, some of you know that story. But, you know, when po people talk about conservatives, I think the centre of being a conservative is this thing of big government, small government, you know, that whole... If ever there was a thing about big government, th this is it. 
If you ever needed an argument for what's wrong with big government, it's here in this book. Um, it is, it's, it's actually chilling and frightening. For me, I find it more chilling, more frightening, more evil than Gosnell. You know, when good people do nothing, you know, that, that, that Bonhoeffer, at least it's, a, it's ascribed to Bonhoeffer, and I, I, I don't know if it's actually Bonhoeffer who said it, you know, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to act is to act. Um, and if that, it is, I mean, I, I'm funny, I was reading pieces of this this morning and just thinking, it is just beyond belief. You know that you would choose, for example, as people in the Department of Health in Harrisburg did, choose to become a nurse. You know, my sister's a doctor. You know, I know, I know what that choice meant. I know what she thought about when she decided to do that. You know, it is about, I want to help people. I, you know, that I want to be that, you know, I want to be that person who helps people, and particularly nurses, by the way. You know, I, I, I mean, is it a cliche to think always of a nurse in those terms of, you know, this kind of person who's just got that loving thing and wants to be caring for people who are unwell? Well, a lot of them in the Department of Health in Harrisburg were nurses. And they did nothing. And it shows you the strength of an ideology. How strong this thing is of protecting abortion, that they would sit there while women died, died, two women who died, and they still stayed in those offices. I, 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 I cannot get my head around that, you know, and I, and I keep on saying, and you know, you know, people, you know, people, particularly conservatives, you know, who are trying to run small businesses and get closed down for sanitation issues, you know, and, and the, you know, those 47 bodies in the, in, in the, in, in the basement when they, when they went there. And one of the stories that, that's in the book that kind of we re sort of revealed this week was that when Jim, Jim Wood, the detective, the great detective who broke this case open in the end, you know, when he went into the, the premises, you know, and there was cat feces, these police officers said it was the worst thing they'd ever seen. And they'd seen everything. These are Philly cops. These are not, you know, these are no gentle boys here. Like, you know, these have seen the whole thing before. And they never saw anything like the like of what they saw there. And here's what they thought was extraordinary. There were two nurses with them during the raid. Again, two nurses came from the Department of Health and they're named in the book. It's all here. One of them had been on the premises the last time she had been there was on an inspection, 17 years earlier. And she was there and he even says, Jim Wood, he said, she had this big face on her and she looked, you know, she wasn't happy. And he was like, what's wrong with her? And, you know, but here's the, here's the killer. When, when they got in there, um, one of the women who was there for an abortion was getting ready to have, to have, to have the abortion and, and, uh, and Jim Wood said, like, well, look, we can't, obviously, nothing's, you're not gonna, we're not going to do anything here now because, like, this, this is crazy here. This place is crazy. It's disgusting. There is a smell of urine. And uh, the nurses phoned Harrisburg, phoned their superiors. First of all, the fact that they even had to phone, I mean, give me a break, you know. That's government. That's what happens when you have big government. You need to phone someone. So they phoned someone to find out what to do. And the person that they phoned decided that they knew nothing and to allow the procedure go ahead. So that's, you know, and when anyone says, you know, oh, it's all changed in, Har in Harrisburg, it's all changed in Pennsylvania, I doubt it. And I doubt it particularly because every one of these departments that we got in touch with in order to get information for the work on this book, every one of them refused to answer questions. The Jefferson School of Nursing, which I really like to specially uh, uh, name and, and, and select name. The Jefferson School of Nursing, have we got that? In Pennsylvania, refused to answer our questions. The Jefferson School of Nursing, we definitely got, we're definitely getting to hear that now, aren't we? Uh, sent nurses in there to do their, you know, whatever, the, you know, what, what, what's that word? Pra you know, their practical, you know, to do their practical thing. So, you know, picture in your head a nurse. You know, you know that picture, you know that smart, shiny-faced person. That shiny-faced person went in there and then didn't come out and go to the police. Lots of them. And Assistant District Attorney Christine Wexler, who questioned these nurses with their shiny faces, wanted to hit them. You know, in all her life, she never heard the like. And you know that expression, the, the bigotry of low expectations. Well, there you've got it. There's the bigotry of low expectations. And I, by the way, do actually think that black lives matter. But not so much to the Black Lives Matter movement because the victims here were black. Samika Shaw was black. She was 22 years old and she died there. And I don't see anyone doing uh, any protesting for her and for, her, for that lost life. Um, 
for those people who are listening and watching this and who think, you know, oh, I can't read that book, I am going to tell you, you have to, whether you like it or not. You have to read it anyway, because the details are, it's the details, actually. I think most people, conservatives, certainly, and certainly people in the pro-life movement, have a certain knowledge of this story. But there are stories in this, and I've heard it already from pro-lifers who said, I'm embarrassed here to tell you that there's lots in this that I didn't know about, that there's stories here that I didn't know about. And I think that it's the, what's a killer is the details. And we need to be detailed in our conversations with people about this issue. Um, and I think being too bland or too amorphous isn't helpful. And at the center of this story, you know, one of the things that's very central is, um, that during the trial, and we got the trial transcripts, um, one of the most powerful moments, I think, is when you know, the good abortion doctor, and a lot of people on Twitter are, are angry with me for using that expression, and I, you know, the legal abortion doctor, the person who is legally doing nothing wrong in this country, who took the stand, two of them, who took the stand to give expert testimony in this case, was amongst the most chilling of the testimony when they testified to what a legal abortion is. And I think that it's a gift to have that testimony, which is not a pro-life activist. It's not anyone. It's actually someone who believes strongly in what they do, describing in detail how it's done. And it's, it's, it's a very good testimony to have. It's a good piece of information to have. It's a good piece of information to share with pro-choice activists and to say to them, well, this is it. This is what you're in favour of. This is what you're believing in. Pulling out an arm or a leg. Those are phrases that are used. Um, and ensuring that you get the needle into the right place so that you, you, so the heart stops. And you're watching. And, and the phrase that's used in the book, you know, not used in the book, but it quoted in the book from the expert testimony, is an expert ultrasound technician. And I'm thinking, you know, you know I'm, 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 uh, I can be quite intemperate. Shocker. And uh, one of one, uh, yeah, and people say to me, you know, because I can be quite well behaved in public, can't I, Bridget? You know, and I can, I can do okay, you know, but, uh, you know, let me loose and I can be, it can get bad quickly. And uh, I have that thing, I live in Los Angeles and, you know, the, you, uh, you know, the, uh, what's that couple, uh, Venice area, you know, they have these people, doctors who are given out, um, you know, the prescription, what's it called, that, um, uh, dope, what, um, marijuana, the, 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 the doctor, and I'm always there walking along there, and I'm so, I'm always trying to hold myself back from walking in and going, is this with your mother? Would your mother be so proud of you? You know, you, you, look at you, you know, wouldn't your mother be so proud that you spent that many years in, at medical school for this? You know, well done you, God help your poor mother, you know? And uh, I do think a little bit about that with these people, you know? That's what you've done with your medical degree. Um, that's what you chose to do with your medical degree. Um, so that's kind of, did I, I kind of maybe bled into a second thing there. But so the first one then is these very personal stories. The second thing is this kind of, this government, this government, government um, as, as, as the quote is from the, gov the governor who came in afterwards, this wasn't government, this wasn't government run amok, it was government not working at all. But I actually think the whole concept of these bureaucracies are a, are a nonsense, are, are use, useless. You could have one person, a random person, like Jim Wood, who just has oodles of sense in charge of the whole thing. Let him walk around and say, you know what, this place is dirty. You know, what's that? <laughs> just a sensible person, you know. Um, that's all you need, as opposed to these vast bureaucracies that cost the taxpayers of Pennsylvania a fortune and did nothing, and did worse than did nothing. They did much worse than did nothing. These are, these are, these are really terrible people. Like, these are terrible people. I don't know how they sleep at night. I just don't get it in my head at all. And the complaints were piled high in Harrisburg. Piled high. One girl who worked in the place um, worked there for a while and, and, and saw what was going on and thought, this is so horrific. This is so horrific. She, 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 said, she said, I'm going to get my coat or whatever. She walked out to her car. like She literally walked out to her car and drove away and never came back. But while she was in the car, she stopped in the car, she wrote a handwritten complaint and hand-delivered it to Harrisburg, to the Department of Health in Harrisburg, and they still did nothing. Doctors gave hand-delivered complaints to Harrisburg, and Harrisburg still did nothing. There's ideology for you. I mean, it's, it's, that's chilling to me. That's chilling because people weren't protected. And the most vulnerable people of all weren't protected because of this kind of mentality. I don't know who these people are. I don't, I don't know who these people are. I, I, thank God, I don't know who these people are. 
Um, I'm going to read, I want to read, let me, I think I'll, I think I want to tell two stories. I mean, I always want to talk about Baby Boy A. Um, but I also want to tell us a good story because I always think people need a good story too. And I think the thing about the book that I'd like to believe is that there are terrible things in it and it's very dark, but then there are really amazing things like the portrait of Jim Wood, which is the very first chapter. He would do you good, you know, that he lives. We're all right. You know, it's going to be okay. Um, that Christine Wexler and Joanne Pescatore and Ed Cameron, the assistant district attorneys, you know, did what they did, you know, we're going to be okay. Um, and that good triumphs, that lots of good people did good things, including the people who have Im immortalized the 47 bodies that were found and who are now buried. Um, and I would like to talk about that too, if I can. We'll see how well I get on here. Um, I want to just do this bit about Baby Boy A. Um, so, and I'm kind of just going to jump in here. Um, according to Cross, that's Karima Cross, one of the workers at the clinic, Abrams, the mother of the child, was heavily sedated when she was taken into the procedure room and the baby just came out. Gosnell was in the room. The baby was about 18 inches long. Gosnell put the baby boy in a Tupperware container. He was still breathing. Gosnell did not cut the baby's neck straight away. He was still, straight away. He was so big that his arms and legs hung over the sides of the container. Cross testified about what happened next. He put it in a shoebox and the baby was hanging over the shoebox, but the baby somehow, someway came together, she said. Pescatore asked Cross to show the court what the baby did. The baby just came together and the picture, it shows the baby was just in a shoebox like this, Cross replied, and the picture is up in the courtroom. Judge Meinhardt wasn't quite following. When you say came together, he interjected, what do you mean? Because when Dr. Gosnell, and then she says, when Dr. Gosnell put the baby in the shoebox, she repeated, the baby was hanging over the shoebox. Pescatore asked Cross to stand up in the courtroom and to show how baby boy A curled up in the container. She crouched into a fetal position the jury was stunned. When the lights in the courtroom were dimmed and the photograph of baby boy Abrams was finally shown, there was silence. Um, and then uh, this is a, more about, more, a little bit more about the photograph. During the trial, Joanne Pescatore spoke very emotionally about the significance of a picture Adrian Moten took. So Cross had a picture, but Adrian Moten had a picture too, um, that Adrian Moten took of the infant who became known as Baby Boy A and how it sealed Gosnell's fate. The murder of Baby Boy A proved a turning point for Moton. This baby was so large, between 18 and 24 inches long, by Moton's reckoning, that she snapped a picture on her phone before Gosnell took him out of the room in a shoebox. Moton said that she knew she was taking picture of a young human being. In fact, that was why she took the photo. And she said, it was a big baby boy he had that colour, that colour that a baby has. I just felt, I felt, I felt he, he could have had a chance. He could have been born any day. I took the picture, she told us. I remember coming home. I showed my mum and I said, the doc has lost his mind. This is ridiculous. She knew the photo represented a madness that was present in 3801 Lancaster Avenue. And she also had a feeling that it was going to be important someday. I never got rid of that phone. To be honest, this is her interview with me. To be honest, I just couldn't get rid of it. I had a feeling that this was going to come to the surface. I just didn't know when. So when the police came, I gave them the phone and I said, there's a picture in there. Do whatever you have to do with it. Because now I'm free. Now I'm free. The investigators need to send it, needed to send the phone to Quantico to get the photograph and uh, to, to retrieve the photograph, but she kept the phone. Um, and she actually said when they came to arrest her, because she also, um, she, she was also guilty of murder herself, um, that when they came to arrest her, she was relieved. She was really relieved when they, when they arrived. Um, so uh, um, I also want to mention Tom Ridge, because it's... Um, it's, it's a bit depressing for people who are conservative to find Republicans letting them down. And 
we could have a whole conversation about that, couldn't we? Um, <laughs> um, but uh, some of you know who Tom Ridge is and was uh, the governor of, um, of Pennsylvania. And he's very, very significant in this case, as many of you know. Um, uh, if I see, um, I'll just jump in here. The Susan B. Anthony List, an anti-abortion activist group, was very clear about Ridge's responsibility for Gosnell's decades-long crime spree. When Governor Bob Casey, a Democrat and a longtime pro-life champion, was replaced by Governor Tom Ridge, a pro-choice Republican, Kermit Gosnell was given free reign. And Ridge found willing and able accomplices in the public health bureaucracy. They knew better and still did nothing. Many of, many of them were registered nurses, all of them healthcare professionals. But in their neglect, they rendered healthcare and professional meaningless. Even before Tom Ridge issued his hands-off edict, Stolowski, one of them, had seen Gosnell's clinic. She knew it was substandard. Not only did she look the other way, she allowed him to continue practicing. Um, you know, the Tom Ridge part of this is, is kind of extraordinary. Um, so he issued an edict basically saying, hands off the, the abortion clinics. And then for 17 years, as I said, you know, um, no one touched the place. So the third part of the book, I think, and I, I, and I think there probably are other bits, but I, I, I'm just thinking that way right now, is the media part of the story, which is, um, which is just, um, just beyond belief. And it's real simple to, to summarise it. It's, it's really simple to understand this media thing, or to, no, not to understand it, but to describe it. Um, ask anyone in America who Michael Brown is. Uh, and people will tell you something, right? Um, and most of what people will tell you is incorrect. So Michael Brown uh, is a person who uh, stole something out of a, a local shop and then assaulted the person who owned that shop, a little corner shop. I believe that the man, in fact, was an immigrant, the person that he assaulted. Then Michael Brown left that shop, walked in the middle of the street, came across a police car where there were police in it, and then tried to beat the police officer to death and in defending himself, the police officer shot Michael Brown. That's who Michael Brown is, and everyone knows who he is. And not alone do I say everyone know who he is, people think it's a good idea to have a monument uh, built in his memory. But nobody knows who Samika Shaw is, and nobody knows who Karnamaya Monger is, and nobody knows who Baby Boy is, but they will after this. And here's what the media did. They did nothing. So the stories that came out of that trial were just unbelievable and extraordinary and should have been reported and should have been reported a lot. And all kinds of excuses are nonsense. Sarah Cliff from the Washington Post writing that, uh, you know, responding to Molly Hemingway, Molly Hemingway, rock star, um, and Molly Hemingway asking her, why are you not reporting on this? You, you'll remember who Sarah Cliff is. Sarah Cliff is the one who, was, who went apoplectic over the um, f uh, Sandra fluke. Fluke? I said it correctly. You've got to be careful with Irish people because they so easily can say a different <laughs> F word. Um, so that Sandra Fluke. And also she, I think, also was very animated by um, the Republican, idiot Republican, who talked about the rape thing, rape, um, that you wouldn't get pregnant from rape. What's that fellow called? Ta yeah. So she went, she had a lot to say about that. By the way, fair enough. I think that was an extraordinary thing. But, you know, she had a lot to say about a lot of things. And then Molly Hemingway asked her why she wasn't reporting on this. And then she famously called it a local crime story. A local crime story, you know, that this was a local crime story. But how, how then is Michael Brown not a local? How is Br Michael Brown, um, you know, a criminal a guy who died uh, while assaulting a police officer? How did that become an international news story? How is it that everyone on the planet Earth has heard of that man? who died assaulting a police officer. Um, how, you know, how is that possible? And then they haven't heard of this. So people made choices. And the chapter, I think, I, you know, I think the chapter that we have detailing this you know, criminal neglect of this story is extraordinary. And it kind of makes, it segues me into the saying something about me being a journalist and what a pleasure it is, to be honest with you. I, you know, I, I think it's important to say that because people have been very nice and people have been very nice to me and people have written and sent prayers and things and been very nice to me about doing this story. And I have found it very upsetting and I have cried and it is true and, uh, and felt nauseous. And I was particularly disturbed by Steve Massov, um, his testimony. And it had, I, definitely, I definitely was very haunted by it and actually um, have prayed over it and hadn't prayed for a very long time and it did bring me back to that because I was, it, I found, far, found parts of it frightening actually. I became frightened um, of the world, of how, how awful the world can be and parts of the world that still exist all over the place. And uh, however, um, 
I, I wouldn't have it any other way that I get to do this. And I'm really grateful and privileged that I get to tell this story. Um, I'm a huge fan of David Delighton. I don't know if you got, you, you, of course you know exactly who David Delighton is. Who doesn't know who David Delighton is? So we love David Delighton, Centre for Medical Progress, and uh, a, a huge fan of me, <laughs> David. And, uh, you know, I remember David, I remember asking David about, you know, that, and you guys know the videos and everything, and that's that, that one where you can hear David's voice and you can see the baby and they're moving the bits of the baby around, the hands and everything, and they're saying, they're moving the arms around. And I just said to David, like, how did you do that? Like, how can you do that? How did you stand there? And he said, he was witnessing for the children. And of course he was. That's exactly what he was doing. And of course, that's why he could do it, because that's a job to do. And I believe that the job I got to do, telling this story in detail, is a pr it's a privilege. I'm delighted with myself. I'm delighted I'm doing this and not doing something else. Um, and uh, you know that thing of like, you know, you know, things that make life worth living, you know? It also, you know, being upset isn't a, it's not a bad thing, you know? It's a, you feel something, you know? It's, you're alive and we're connected. And we're connected to this. And, and people have to know, and people have to buy the book. And anyone who says, oh, I don't think I could read that, I, you'll be better for it. You won't be worse for it. I feel edified by knowing Baby Boy A. I feel better for it. I feel better for all these voices. And on that note, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, um, to... I, I, we never ever discuss time, so I have no idea how this is working. <laughs> um, but I want to do this, and then I maybe we should take questions, the things I hadn't thought of doing. Um, um, at the end of the book... We do this, we have a, a chapter called, you know, Aftermath, where we kind of tie up all the ends, find out where all these people from the Department of Health went and all that. You know, people retired. People took early retirement. One of the, one of the people I, I have most um, dis disgust for, Stalowski, has retired. So she's on a really nice pension, having a, having a great time, you know. Um, paid for by the, the people of Pennsylvania, who she didn't protect when she had a chance, um, when she paid for that job. Um, and one of the big issues was the 47 bodies that were found on the premises, and people cared deeply for them. And I have, I have friendships now. I have these really incredible friendships with people, and that's a great thing about Facebook, a lot of bad things about Facebook and social media, but a great thing is that you have these friendships with people. And I'm a friend of a grandmother of one of those children, and, uh, and I th that's a privilege. Um, and she writes very beautiful emails and beautiful prayers, I can tell you. Very, very lovely lady. But, um, and she's in this book. Um, but we don't name her. Um, and mostly because she wants to protect her son's identity. Uh, a lot of people wanted the children to be buried and to get a Christian burial and for people to acknowledge uh, their lives. And uh, Philadelphia didn't do that. It didn't, didn't do that the way that the people who petitioned wanted it done. So they actually went ahead and buried them privately, secretly. But then they afterwards told the people who had been petitioning, look, we did bury them and this is where we buried them. And uh, so this is what happened then. And... Um, See how I go with this, okay? So, on June the 10th, 2015, a small group of people gathered at Laurel Hill Cemetery overlooking the Skullkill Skull River. And for all the people in Philadelphia, please don't write and say that I'm murdering that, okay? To commemorate the 47 ba babies whose bodies were discovered frozen in Gosnell's clinic. The mourners consisted of clergy, pro-life activists and others, uh, touched by the stories of how the children had died. Roman Catholic Archbishop Charles Chaput and pro-life activists had mounted a campaign to obtain custody of the babies. Um, Alliance Defending Freedom Attorney Catherine Glenn Foster acknowledged that, in the end, Philadelphia officials had fulfilled the wishes of all who wished to pay their respects to the babies. Today we can say to the city of Philadelphia, the city, the city of Philadelphia has heard us. They gave these babies a place to be buried. These babies were like any other precious little persons. Foster told the mourners gathered in the summer sun. How a person dies doesn't make anyone less human. Try as hard as he might, neither their killer nor his infamy could erase these babies' humanity. We will use this sacred space to cry and to remember and to say this ends here. But the people who had petitioned for the babies' bodies felt that other people, that the city had let Gosnell's victims down. It was wrong, they said. The children had been buried secretly. The Reverend Patrick Mahoney, director of the Washington DC-based Christian Defense Coalition, said at the memorial, I would simply say this to the medical examiner and the Philadelphia city government. These children were not unclaimed. We came for months after months seeking these children in love. 
They were not unclaimed. They were wanted, they were desired, they had meaning and purpose. It's a sentiment we share. Okay, I'm going to take, I, is that, what do you think? Do you think this is a good idea? And I see friends here, by the way, and uh, shout out, friends here, and also people who donated to the film. Thank you, rock stars. Um, so uh, thank you, 29,000 people. So um, I think we have, we have some of those people here, so very grateful. Can you tell Yeah, I please. Um, tell us, if, for the people who haven't uh, kind of heard you speak about this before, how did you and Phelan, uh first learn about this and get involved and was it an issue initially that you said you know we've got to do this yeah no <laughs> so um uh i think there's providence in this myself um so we made a film called Frack Nation, wonderful film. It's available on Netflix um, about fracking. And a lot of it was shot in Pennsylvania. So Phelan was actually on his own, traveling around Pennsylvania, having screenings. And he had a few days off. And he went to Philadelphia. And unlike most normal human beings who like, go to the pub or go out and play golf or something, Phelan uh, is just a complete, like he's all, he's all journalism all the time. And so he um, had heard that there was this uh, criminal story going on and this thing going on at the courthouse. And he went to the courthouse and he went in and it was like the Mary Celeste. There was no one there. There were some Mennonite women knitting. And God bless them, by the way. I, you know, and he said there was Mennonite women there pretty much all the time. Um, and uh, so they were there, and then he came in, and they put uh, they had a projector on front of the jury showing the pictures. And uh, he sat there, and he 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 just was gobsmacked. It was the worst thing he'd ever seen, and he got a massive education, and he never knew that abortion involved babies that looked like that. He thought it was always a bunch of a bunch of cells. So. Um, he was completely fired up. He went to it for three days. He'd be phoning me and telling me stuff. And I was kind of, you know, I just, abortion, you know. And then he came back and he said to Magda, and I, Magda's our business partner, and he said, you know, this is, this is what we have to do now. You know, this is what we have to do. And Magda and I are like, no, that's not what we're going to be doing at all, actually. You know, we're not doing anything to do with abortion. I wanted nothing to do with this. Um, I mean, and really strongly. Like, we were like, there's no way we're doing this. And so what he did was he um, bought the trial transcripts for the days that he had been there. And he said, can you just read, just read the three days. And, and we did. And that changed all that. And, it, you, you know, it just becomes, and it becomes everything. And we already had money for a different movie, and we sent it back. It became everything to us. It became the only thing we wanted to do. And... Um, it's been quite the education. And I think for somebody who's sort of, you know, basically pro-choice, neutral on abortion, um, to get an education, it's, it's um, as a grown-up, you know what I mean? As opposed to being like in high school or something. But, you know, when you're a grown-up and you know a fair bit about life, then to learn this and learn that you didn't know it, um, you know, and to learn that, like, you got to the age that you are and, you know, you read and consume the media and you knew nothing about this. Nothing. I, I, I say this all the time. Planned Parenthood are geniuses. Because they're keeping this story to themselves. You know, Americans don't even know the law in their own states. They don't know that the, the law in this country can only be compared to laws in North Korea. That the Europeans would never do this. The socialists don't do this. You know, and, 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 I, and I will ha I've had standing rows of people. People don't know it. People don't know that you can have an abortion legally in Pennsylvania at six months. People don't know that in this country you can have an abortion at nine months legally. And you can, and you can, in lots of places. And I know people who've worked in those places. I know a wonderful woman who worked for 20 years at the Boulder Clinic in Colorado, which is a late-term abortion clinic. A wonderful person who's had um, a very deep and um, a, a, very, a very profound uh, conversion experience and is a very wonderful person who is in communication with me all the time. And, um, and she tells a story. I mean, have I, I don't know. Somebody should tell me about the time. We're good. She tells a story of the worst thing that happened. And I, I must ask her, I don't know if this was the actual thing that changed her, but she said the worst thing that ever happened in that clinic was a happily married young couple who came healthy, in love, all of that, and they were pregnant um, with twins. And uh, they said, you know, you know, we talked to friends, you know, we researched it, we really looked it up and everything, and you know what, it just really wouldn't suit us at all, you know, that whole twins thing, like really wouldn't suit us at all. So they aborted healthy twins. 
And she said the most hardened person in the clinic was, um, was moved by that. And I don't know if that was the one that, that moved her. Um, but I can tell you, I, I, have, I, have, I, have a, I have a lot of stories like that. that. These are not unusual stories. These are not unusual stories. Safe, legal and rare. My right. Um, did I answer the question? That's, that's okay. Great. Do we have other questions? I, I do want you to talk a little bit about the movie and what the, oh, yeah. your, your where we're at. Are. Yeah. The movie, is, is, the movie is great. I mean, some people here maybe have seen it. Have some people here seen it? No. Bridget has seen it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, very few people have seen it, but it's maybe, maybe 200 people have seen it. And anyone who has seen it said it, it, like, it scores off the charts. People really, really like the film. Yeah. yeah I'm and we're going to show it at CPAC. Yeah. We're going to show it at CPAC, another reason to come to CPAC. Not that you need another reason to come to CPAC. We're, we're partying, right? So, um, but it's, um, but, the, but, the, but the film is very, very good. The reason we wrote the book was because you couldn't, you can't get into all this stuff in, in a movie, um, all that detail. But a lot of the, the stories that are in the movie are all real. And where we're, where we're at with the film, the film is completed. Um, uh, we have, uh, it, has been, it has been seen by every major distributor in Hollywood and they have all rejected it. Uh, saying that it's too controversial. And, uh, you know, I, I, to be honest, I'm a bit shocked because we did have 29,000 people, so far 29,000 people from 47 countries, breaking records in, you know, in, in, in producing the film, basically. So um, what's going to happen, what we have to do now, what we have to do because of that is we're going to have to do an independent release, which means we have to raise the money ourselves. We have to raise the money for the marketing, and it's a lot of money. So that's where we're at, but it's going to go out this year. And all of, this, all of the stars are aligning a little bit, I think, on this. This book went to number three on Amazon. Did I mention that earlier? <laughs> Did I mention that I'm going to the White House later on this afternoon? <laughs> Did I mention that, you know, so th there are things that are aligning. You know, Mike Pence is going to speak tomorrow at the March for Life. So is Kellyanne. There's a little bit of there's a little bit of something's going on here now, you know. Um, this is this is this is this is mainstream, and this is a this is going to be. I think we might even have the media cover the March for Life tomorrow. Shocker for the first time in recorded history, you know. Um, did I answer that question? Yes, that's the movie. Yeah, that's where the movie's at. Anyone else? raise money for the distribution. Yes. That, that's where you are now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful film, I have to tell you all. And one of the, the best remarks at showing I saw, and I think he was a pastor, and he stood up and he said, I could show this film to my children. Yeah, that's right. That's right. My favorite quote about the film is that David himself, David Delighton, has seen it, and he said it's the best film made about abortion ever. Yeah, yeah. which... It's pretty high compliments come from him. Yes. It, it, it was an extraordinary uh, book. I got about halfway through it last night. Oh, thank um, you. And, and it gave me nightmares, honestly, because I probably have four month old, so maybe I should have read it before bed. But, but my question was why weren't more people prosecuted as accomplices and accessories? I understood Philadelphia's officials' reticence on, on spiking their own murder rate. Um, I know politicians. Yeah. But but I mean there were so many people that, that handed those children to Gosnell, that took those children, so many nurses in those clinics giving out illegal drugs that you know, the first drug that kills the people. Why weren't more people put in jail aside from Gosnell and I guess one other doctor? Yeah, Massoff. Massoff has a very big sentence. I mean I think he's got he's got more than at least at least at least fifteen years, I think, before they'll they'll look at him. Um You've, have you read Willing Accomplices? You've read that chapter then, have you? Maybe um, I, I'm not sure how far I, I in... Got, I, I got about 150. Yeah. Um, don't forget, by the way, write an Amazon review. It's very important okay. uh, because there'll be people who'll go onto Amazon and start trying to bring the reviews down. But um, so, um, so Steve Massoff is in a different category to the other workers that were there. So there were all these other workers that were in the clinic who have, who, you know, had a cocktail of, um, of things like hepatitis C, HIV alcohol abuse, drug addiction, um, most of them had a sixth or seventh grade education. And I, f I think what really happened was that when it came to going after Gosnell, who was the one that they needed to shut down, they got cooperation and they did deals. Er they did deals, but everyone went to prison. Every all of them went to prison, but for shorter periods. Adrian Moten went to prison. You know, Elizabeth Hampton went to prison. Uh, Pearl Gosnell went to prison. So lots they all went to prison, but for, for much shorter periods of time because of the fact that they had all cooperated. And their cooperation was very important. 
um, and very necessary. And if they decided not to cooperate, but I mean, that, it's an interesting question and one that is troubling, by the way, that some of them got very, very short sentences, um, having given their descriptions of what they did. Steve Massov got a much heavier sentence, and the reason for that, I think, is that Steve Massov had a medical degree. He wasn't he wasn't one of those women. He was a, a qualified person in a sense. He didn't have a medical license, but he worked there. Um, and his own description of what he did, I think, and I don't think you've read that bit yet. For me, that was, I found that, I think that was the, the most, it was the most frightening thing I've ever read. I certainly found it very frightening because the way he described it. And, and it kind of makes you think about, you know, it's, it's sort of psychologically maybe okay to imagine one really, really, really bad person. But then when you start to see this multitude of others, um, ones who have intentionally doing awful things like Steve Massoff, and then uh, there's, there's the Harrisburg version of it, which is, the, which is another version of the same thing. Um, their hands are, are dirty. There's guilt there, you know. Um, uh, I, and I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm concerned. I, 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 I wonder why more. I'm, I wonder why people from Harrisburg didn't go to prison. Yeah. You know, I wonder why people from Harrisburg didn't go to prison and why, why they weren't prosecuted. And I don't know the answer to that. But it's a protected class. You know, and they had. Um, you know, just here's a sickener, by the way. When they, when they came to the, when they appeared in front of the grand jury, the people from Harrisburg, these bureaucrats, and there's lawyers, by the way, in Harrisburg. The lawyers from Harrisburg brought lawyers with them to the grand jury. And who paid for their lawyers? Mm. The people of Pennsylvania, the taxpayer of Pennsylvania. Mm. Yeah. And thank you yeah. so much. Um, you talked about pastors who have been very positive and supportive. My organization works uh, to change the social witness of churches, and we work with denominations that are part of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, um, women priests who say that abortion is holy, things like that, and I was wondering if you've had any run-ins with them at all. No. What we can do. No, I have not <laughs> met those people. I haven't met those people. I mean, it's very, uh, yeah, no, I haven't met those people. I've met, I've met a few abor abortion doctors. I spoke at an event in Aspen, um, hosted by a very nice person, and, uh, and, and a person, uh, a t you know, uh, yeah, abortion doctor turned up at that and was very... Um, very odd, actually. Basically, you know, so everyone was very supportive at the event, and everyone was being very nice. And then this guy turns up and says, you know, you're wrong. You know, you say that he was he wasn't an OBGYN. I know he was an OBGYN. He's a friend of mine. I he's a you know, and this is ridiculous. And of course, he was no. That was the one thing was he's an OB, which is like whatever. But you know, he's no, and he's he is an OBGYN. And I'm going, no, he's not an OBGYN. He's not an OBGYN. It's like, when you have those kind of standoffs with people, like, I don't know what you do with it. You know, I don't know how you get documentary evidence that you can immediately show to the person. But, and then um, we sort of, the, the, the meeting ended and people were having a drink or whatever, and he came up and he said, I know, he does, I know he's not an OBGYN. I was like, are you kidding me? Well, <laughs> yeah. It's really odd when you have clergy who are affirming abortion as a holy thing. I don't understand. I can't get my head around that at all. Like, and, I can't. Have you seen? Yeah. Not, yeah. not no, 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 that's wild. Abortion, but for and did, did you, by the way, I'm sure you have, you saw that thing in the, the Telegraph, I think, reported this year, that thing that when conception happens, that there's a light. Mm. I just thought that was extraordinary. Like, it's kind of gratuitous. Like, you don't need a light, but there's a light. <laughs> that a light goes off, did you see that? Mm. It's a video, yes. it's, it's unbelievable. Yes. The moment of conception, there's a light. <laughs> it's like, very extraordinary. You, you mentioned the Gosnell, uh, it's actually the... The, oh um, God, yeah, Gosnell, yeah, Bible. yeah, which is kind of close to, but maybe a little bit close where you're going. Um, at the back of the book, we actually so Gosnell writes to us all the time, and he phones, and uh, we have like this pile of letters. Like um, I think I, I put a photograph up on, on Facebook one time, just showing the whole pile of letters and everything. But um, at the back of the book, we've reproduced, like as in just like uh, printed two of his letters just to show you the kind of stuff that he sends. So he has a section with uh, scripture passages justifying abortion. And he gives a scripture passage, and then he says, this means this, and this is this, and this and this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He writes poetry, and the poetry is all about abortion. Like, one of his poems has a line in it, which is repeated. It's the only repeated line in that poem. Abortion is a celebration of life. Abortion is a celebration of life. Yeah. I know. Not repentant. Not even slightly repentant. I mean, you know, he was super relaxed in the prison. Very has this kind of very um, super relaxed demeanor. Like he's just played golf and very affable. And um, you know, he has this mellifluous voice. And he sang uh, to me in the prison. Um, but you think he's not crazy? No, I don't think he's crazy. No, and no one else did, by the way. Yeah. 
you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, no, I don't think he's crazy. I think, I think, on, you know, I think he's, I think, I think he's narcissistic at, at, a, at a, probably at a slightly patholo pathological level. Because he says things and you like, you feel like just laughing really in his face, you know. Like he says, you know, you know, one of the things about me, you know, you know, one of the things about me, you know. I just don't tell people how intelligent I am, you know. I don't, that's one of my faults, I suppose. Like, he talks like that. He talks like that, and you're thinking, are you, are you seriously, are you, you know. And then he has this whole thing about, um, actually, I was going to read that passage to you. Uh, he has this whole thing about music, and um, our dear friend, uh, Boris Selkin, who wrote the music for the movie, uh, who's a composer, had said to me, you know, when, when I was going, and he's a buddy of mine, I said, what should I ask him? He said, you should ask him about music. People's music choices are very interesting, he said. You know, maybe he'll have an interesting thing to say about music. And uh, he started this whole thing about music then, like this massive, thing including this thing about Jacques Brel the crooner and talked about how much he how, how much he loved that you know um, and then at the end of our visit to him uh, oh anyway it's like you know yeah I mean it's kind of too complicated I mean one of the other things that he said was um, you know if I hadn't been a doctor you know I could have been um, a concert pianist I that's how good I am at playing Chopin. So when we left the prison, and there was a whole crazy thing that happened at the end, it's too long to tell, but there's a kind of a whole crazy scene that happened at the end of our visit in the, in the prison, which is just bizarre. Like, um, so it was kind of scary. And anyway, we get out of the prison and we're just like, we've been in there for like nearly three hours and we're, and it, he got, at the end of the conversation, he went, decided to go all disgusting and start talking about women's menstruation and all that kind of thing. And I thought he was doing it just to embarrass my husband. You know, I thought, he knows exactly what he's up to here and he kept touching my leg. He was kind of trying to control the environment, you know. So we get in the car, so we get out of the prison and we get in the car and, uh, we, you know, it was kind of, you know, it was... It was funny, like, we didn't get into the car and start yapping to each other, which is, Fame and I normally, you know, at least one of us yapping, that'd be me. And him going, yes, darling, you know, whatever. But uh, we got in the car and we were completely silent. And it was interesting that the great thing was that we were, the, we had to get in the car and we were going to Philadelphia to meet Jim Wood. So it's kind of, you know, and uh, so we got in the car and I, I, um, I I'll, I'll read this a little bit because I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's interesting. Um, Phelim and I were silent as we drove away from the prison. A composer friend had sent some Chopin for us to listen to in the car. We listened to the second movement of the first piano concerto and didn't speak. If you know that piece, it's just amazing. Um, the countryside around the prison is lush and green. There was rain in the wind and small drops were falling on the windshield. I was numb. In all my life, I'd never been in the presence of someone who so disturbed me. I'd been working on the Gosnell material for more than a year, reading horrific testimony and police reports interviewing witnesses and co-accused baby killers. I knew what Gosnell had done. And the pictures of his victims would be with me always. But meeting him was different from reading about him. We drove on in silence and let the bucolic landscape and the music soothe. How could anyone love Chopin, such beautiful music, and still be capable of committing such hideous acts? The music is so gentle and delicate. It's the music of the heart and the soul. How could Gosnell appreciate that music and be a monster? As soon as I had that thought, I remembered the imprisoned musicians at the Nazi concentration camps who were forced to play the most wonderful music. The Nazis were capable of appreciating beautiful music. Their prisoners, half starved to death, played as their fellow inmates, men and women and children, were led off box cards and walked their last steps towards the gas chambers. So, um, and, it's, and it's an interesting thing about doing this book and reading this. The only thing I compare everything to is... Um, is the Holocaust. It, it, the, 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 the feelings that come up are like the Holocaust. And I've met Eric, the wonderful Eric Metaxas now, twice. And, uh, um, and I was saying that to him, and I was saying that, you know, that Bonhoeffer has been very much on my mind throughout all of this because, um, you know, just, uh, it's interesting and, um, because of, uh, obviously, of who he was and, and what he did and how incredible he was in the face of evil. Um, just incredible, I mean, not, not to talk about somebody else's book, but I do think that the Bonhoeffer book is a great book, and uh, I've done many copies of it I've bought now at this point, but it's, um, what a great, um, what a great achievement. Yes? I don't know too much about what happened to, Sorry. I, I don't know too much about what happened to um, Gosnell, but is he in a federal prison, and what was his sentence? Yeah, so he's, he's, in, a st he's in a state facility in Huntington, a state-run prison in, in Huntington, in Pennsylvania. He got three life sentences for the three babies, um, and he got, uh, he got manslaughter for Karnamaya Monger, 
Um, and he also then, on top of that, I think it is 30 years, I, haven't, I, I have not I have to look it up, I think it's 30 years he got for the drug charges. So he also ran a pill mill, so you know those places where you can buy a prescription for oxyco Oxycontin, and he, 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 did, he also did that. Um, like the night that Karnamaya Monger, just to imagine the kind of person that he was, the night that Karnamaya Monger died, you know, he would sign the scripts, he just signed them and then let people fill them in or whatever. So he signed scripts for his pill mill operation the night that she died. And he spoke to his lover, his 28-year-old lover, for like four hours on the phone. It's frightening, frightening. Thank, Thank you, you so much for bringing it to her attention. And, and <laughs> to the we have copies of the book um, uh, with the lunch in our conference center, which is just through the lobby and back near um, our new staff lounge. Um, Anne didn't mention that she was on Hannity. I mean, she was no. on O'Reilly Factor. I was on the O'Reilly Factor. On uh, Tuesday night. Yes. And there is a wonderful segment on Fox, and uh, we can have Claire Boothley send it out to the list. She does an, an awesome job, and that was the interview that really drove... Uh, the numbers up on Amazon, um, and then the Eric Metaxas interviews are they available for? Yeah, they're on his podcast apparently. Yeah, and there's two of them. He brought us back. We had we went the first day, and then he asked us to come back the second day, which was which was great. I'm such a fan of his. It was like you know that kind of uh, meeting my like like meeting a rock star. I was like, oh my god, it's Eric Metaxas, you know. <laughs> um, he's just great. And then rushes this afternoon. And rushes this afternoon. Do you know what yes. time that segment? So, uh, well, I don't know when it goes out because it doesn't. You know, it goes out different parts. But, but I suppose you're east, so it's been recorded two yeah. thirty Eastern, and it's Mark Stein sitting in for Rush today. Oh, excellent. and we had I, behave yourself. I know I'm the same. <laughs> <coughs> I was, and we've literally just been on Sunday, wasn't it? So we just flew up to Vermont. We were in Vermont with with Mark Stein. He's just great. More of that, please. Thank you. Yeah. We'll, we'll have more of that. I, you know what I like to, talk, to say? He'd love this too, so I'm going to say this. Um, I'm, well, I'm sure he'd love this. I meant to say it, and I didn't say it after we had our like, very nice lunch together, but I think I would describe Mark Stein as the thinking woman's bit of crumpet. <laughs> what do you think? Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? I love yeah. that. So thank you all for joining us, and please stick around for thank lunch you. and conversation and um, book signing, which will be just uh, through the lobby and back into the conference Aww. center. Thanks very much. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.